certain order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then Isaiah said, Take a cake of figs. And they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. Now Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What will be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps, or go back ten steps? So Hezekiah answered, It is easy for the shadow to decline ten steps. No, but let the shadow turn backward ten steps. Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord, and he brought the shadow on the stairway back ten steps by which it had gone down, and the stairway on the stairway, excuse me, of Ahaz. At that time, Baradoc Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil, and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, Is it not so, if there will be peace and truth in my days? Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, and all his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit, and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles 
of the kings of Judah. So Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, became king in his place. Amen. And then also, if you'll take your hymnal, page 921, chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith of God and of the Holy Trinity. We read in section number 1. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in his being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. For his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. He hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Amen. Now, we uh, come to uh, the final section uh, dealing with King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, just to review, was a good king. He restored uh, the temple worship. He restored the Passover, which was important. Both had been neglected. Inventions had been added into the life of the church in the Old Testament. And Hezekiah cleaned all of that up. Now, Hezekiah uh, didn't have a perfect faith, but... He did love the Lord. His faith wavered a little bit when the Assyrians invaded Judah and he uh, tried to make a bribe uh, with the Assyrians. And then Hezekiah realized his mistake and repented of it and quit uh, offering tribute at which the Assyrians sent their delegates down to Jerusalem to threaten Hezekiah and Jerusalem with destruction if they continued in this rebellion. Well, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. He sought the Lord. He prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered his prayer and gave word through uh, Isaiah the prophet that he would deliver the city of Jerusalem. And so uh, God, through the angel of the Lord, killed 185,000 uh, men that were encamped in Judah. 
And so God brought about this tremendous deliverance, boys and girls. God did an amazing feat in uh, saving his people from this terrific army. Now we come to this chapter where suddenly uh, we are told that Hezekiah is desperately sick, even sick, uh, even unto death, that the sickness is mortal. We don't know exactly what kind of sickness this is. Maybe doctors could speculate for us, but all we know is that Hezekiah is apparently in bed. Uh, he is ill, and God sends Isaiah the prophet. Look at verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. That means get ready, Hezekiah, to die. Do all the things you need to do. Get your will in order. Get your, you know, find all the succession plans that you have. Uh, make sure that your family knows, you know, what the passwords are so you can get into the computer and all that stuff that you need to do to recognize that you are not long for this world and, and that you, you and your family need to you know, get ready for that. Well, um, Hezekiah does what? Well, he does something here in verse 2 and 3, and that is, boys and girls, young children, this is important for us to know, he prays. Hezekiah turns his face, we're told, to the wall, and he prays to the Lord. And he says in verse 3, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly before the Lord. And then in verses 4 through 6, Hezekiah then tells Isaiah, who's walking, remember, Isaiah, can you imagine, this is your assignment for the day. The Lord says, go to the king and tell him he's going to die and get his house in order. Has, Isaiah does that. He goes and speaks to Hezekiah. He leaves. He's walking out of the palace. He hasn't gotten as far as the middle of the court uh, on the way out, the middle courtyard, and the Lord stops him and says, Isaiah, I want you to go back now. So we get... The idea from that is that Hezekiah immediately upon hearing this news begins to pray and does not delay and, and immediately begins to petition the Lord for mercy and for grace and says, Lord, remember me and how I have served you. Now, I, I don't think Hezekiah is saying, Lord, I should be heard on the basis of these works, but he's simply putting these works as evidence that he loves the Lord. He has faith and trust in the Lord and that he has been serving the Lord. And, and therefore, he asks that the Lord might deliver him and heal him and protect him and help him. And so God tells Isaiah, who's in the courtyard, Isaiah, turn around. Don't go home. This is Isaiah's going to have to wait a little bit longer and go back and speak to Hezekiah again and tell Hezekiah that the Lord has heard your prayers and he's added another 15 years to your life. Now, what do we make of this? What are our thoughts about this? 
Because it seems kind of strange, doesn't it, that God should send the prophet to say that the Lord has decreed Hezekiah the king shall die. And then only minutes later, the Lord says, you're not going to die. Now, and, and this, of course, raises some interesting questions for us, doesn't it? How do we understand in light of who God is? God is the eternal, immutable, unchangeable God. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass, and that which God decrees will absolutely come to pass. And, and God is not a being who changes. He's perfect in his being, perfect in his attributes. He knows everything from the beginning to the end. And all that he decrees happens. And yet here we seemingly see God change his mind. And so this, this raises interesting questions for us. Does God change his mind? Can I change the mind of God myself as someone who prays? Can God think one way and then he hears the petition of you, a member of Covenant Presbyterian Church in LaGrange, Georgia, and it comes before the holy, infinite, eternal, immutable God who's created the heavens and the earth, who knows all the stars by name, who has sent the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night, who controls everything from the greatest movements of the galaxies to the smallest, tiniest little ant walking on the ground. And you, creature of dust, <laughs> come into the presence of God through the merits of Jesus Christ, bringing a petition. And God hears it and says, you know, that's a good idea. And I changed my mind. Well, here's the theological answer. Yes and no. <laughs> like good theologians, we always cover our bases on these kinds of questions, right? Does God hear creatures of dust and their petitions and it moves them? It, move, it moves him, the living and true God, to do what he might not otherwise do if your prayer had not been given? Absolutely. But does God change his mind? Well, in some ways, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? He's the immutable God. <laughs> and so what are, what are we dealing with here with Hezekiah? You know, my, uh, one of my professors, uh, Dr. Richard Pratt, professor of Hebrew and Old Testament at Reformed Seminary, used to put it this way. He said, look, you have to do theology in different directions, top down and bottom up. There's two ways that we deal with theology. What is systematic theology? Systematic theology, if you pick up a book of Burkhoff or Bavink or Calvin or Turretin, you pick your favorite theologian and you read his systematic theology, his compendium of multi-volumes. What's he doing? Well, he's doing top-down theology, and we need that. What is your shorter catechism? Your shorter catechism is kind of doing theology top-down. It's emphasizing what we read here in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Who is God? God is infinite, eternal, immutable. That means he does not change at all. God has one eternal thought. He is not thinking and 
growing in his thinking. He is never learning. He is omniscient. He knows all things. There's nothing hidden from God. You can't teach God anything in your prayers. He knows your heart from afar. He knows the words before you even utter them. Okay, so that's the top-down kind of theology, and we have to do that. Uh, Otherwise, uh, we get into serious error quickly if we don't have those guardrails. But also, as we come to the scriptures, we have to kind of do theology bottom-up for what sometimes we call biblical theology. Uh, And that is, we have to deal with the passages themselves, that here is this creature, King Hezekiah, who prays to the Lord, and the Lord responds. And the Bible says that the, that the Lord, in response to the prayer of Hezekiah, sent another word. God said one thing through Isaiah, and then in response to Hezekiah's prayer, God says another thing. And they are both true. And we don't have to reconcile them because they're not at odds with one another. Now, it may be mysterious to you, but guess what? Any point of doctrine in the Bible, Van Til said, if you push it far enough, will always run into a wall of mystery. And, and, and it has to be that way because you are a finite creature with very, very, very limited understanding of who this God is. You have a, a tiny little island of knowledge surrounded by a great ocean of who God is. You know a little bit. You know what God has revealed to you in the scriptures. That which God, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that which God has revealed is for you and your children. But there are hidden things that are, that are only for the knowledge and, and the persons of the Godhead. Things that are hidden from us, things that are high, and mysterious. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are infinitely above our own. As far as the heavens is from the earth, so are the thoughts of God above our own. We come nowhere close to the knowledge and thoughts of God as they are in his own being. Now this is not to say that we cannot know God. Of course we know him. We know him in the word. We know him in the scriptures. We know him in Jesus Christ. He is revealed, the Father has revealed himself to us in his Son. And to know the Son is to know the living God. And so we truly do know him. But we have to realize here, as we wrestle with this, that while God does not change, you can't teach God anything. God is absolutely immutable. God God's decrees are immutable. That which God has decreed from eternity past is irrevocable and will certainly come to pass, and God will not change it otherwise. Nevertheless, you have to understand that God in those eternal decrees has decreed that he would change his mind. (laughs) Now, let's make it simple for the kids here. Richard Pratt, again, borrowing from Richard Pratt, said, think about it this way. Some of you kids, maybe you've participated in a play before, all right? You, you have a part in the play. 
you've got some lines, you memorize those lines, you give those lines, the other students uh, on the stage give their lines and, and the play goes forward. Now imagine, says Richard Pratt this, imagine that God writes a play, right? God is the author of the play. And that everything God writes in the manuscript of the play is going to happen. In fact, it's going to happen exactly, perfectly, in a way that no director or producer can ever seem to happen in the movies, right, or theater. There's always things that even the best director, you know, has to say, okay, we just got to go with it. This didn't turn out exactly like I wanted. But God, the, everything God decrees will happen. But now, imagine this. God has written this big play, but God has also made himself one of the main characters. In fact, the main character of the play. And he comes onto the stage and off the stage and onto the stage and off the stage. God keeps making these appearances in the play. Now, the play is irrevocable. It is, it is if you will, it is written, and it, it will come to pass exactly the way God has intended it. But in this case... In this particular scene, Hezekiah is lying on his bed, desperately ill, mortally ill, and he has written in this play that Hezekiah will pray and God will come back on stage and will say, okay, I'll give you another 15 years, and then exits. So that, in one sense, did God change his mind? Ultimately, no. But has God cha truly changed his mind? From our perspective, absolutely. Now, here's where I want to bring it to some applications. Because I want you to see something that I hope will really motivate you to do two things. One, pray. And two, start witnessing for Christ. And that is this. Every time you pray, you are praying because God decreed you'd pray. Now that should excite you a little bit. Every time you pray, you prayed. Every time you come to a prayer meeting, you, every time you come to a, a morning service, an evening service, you do so because God has decreed in eternity past that you would be in those services and you would be praying and you would be worshiping. He's written that into the script, and that should be encouraging to you, that God has included you in this great production of his. I think it also should motivate us, because we think, well, if God has written it, every time I pray, God has decreed that I would pray. Hey, guess what? If I start praying more, that means what? God's decreed, hasn't he? And why would God decree that I pray more? Because God intends to do more through your prayers. And the same with your witnessing. Every time you witness for Christ, you're witnessing because God had decreed that you would, you would witness. You would tell somebody about the gospel. You would share something about what God has done in your life and in your family. You, you would help further the cause and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I know that, well then, I, I want to do more of that, don't I? You see, sometimes Arminians want to come at us as Calvinists and they say, well, you, you think 
you know, God is sovereign over every detail of life? And we say yes. And you say that God has eternally decreed everything that comes to pass, and we say yes. You say God has predestined everything to happen that happens, and we say yes. That just makes you a robot. No! I am not a robot. I am, in fact, I am my own moral creature. You, are, you have a, a moral will of your own that God has given you, but the, the, the sovereignty of God does not diminish my enthusiasm to pray and to witness and to say, you know, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. I don't become some kind of uh, Muslim fanatic who says, you know, if it's the will of Allah to, for me to get run over a car, I'll get run over a car. So I'm, I'm not even going to bother looking both ways. I'll just walk out in the street. No, I, I recognize that I have a moral responsibility in light of the sovereignty of God. God has made me in his image. God has decreed everything that will come to pass. I understand that, and now I am motivated to pray because God is sovereign. Not despite it. Now here's what ha happens too often. God comes into your life and he says, get your house in order, and we say, well, okay, that's it. God says, go out and fulfill the Great Commission. And we're like, well, if God wants to save them, he'll save them. I had a woman tell me that. You don't need, she said, you don't need to go to Africa. God will save them if he, if, if he wants to. I had a woman tell me that. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. We go, we give, we pray because God is sovereign. If God was not sovereign over all of this, then you'd have reason to question, should I pray? Does it really matter? But it's because I know God, if I'm praying, I know God has decreed that I should be praying, and therefore it must matter to God. Otherwise, God would not have decreed my prayers. Get it? The sovereignty of God should motivate you to pray, should motivate you to give, should motivate you to evangelize. It's not a hindrance. And Hezekiah understood that. And so when he received, quote unquote, the death sentence, he turned to the Lord and he, he prayed to the Lord for grace and for mercy. And God gave it to him. Now that doesn't always happen. Paul had a thorn in his flesh and he prayed and God said, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient. So we don't want to learn from this, well, then I'm in control, okay? We also don't want to think from this example, well, I'm in control. I can change God's mind. Maybe you can, and maybe you can't. <laughs> maybe God will relent. We don't know. And God doesn't reveal that to us. In, in any extraordinary way except through his providence. But until God does so, we should keep praying, I would argue. And that we ought to, as Jesus said in uh, Luke chapter 18, that we not give up on prayer, that we be like the importunate widow 
and, and, and until uh, either it is providentially shown that the, that the answer is no or not yet, we keep praying. If it's, if it's not yet, we keep praying. So I think you have to keep this in mind. You don't, you don't want to get too top-heavy where you think, well, you know, God is so sovereign and therefore what I do is vain. You don't want to get too bottom heavy where you begin to think you're maybe God and where you just name it and claim it and you have it. See that? So we need both. Sometimes we look from the top down and sometimes from the bottom up. God is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely immutable in his being and in all his attributes. But that should motivate us as free moral agents in Christ to do the work of God, not less of it. Now I want to move on here to verse 7. And uh, Isaiah says, after telling Hezekiah that his life will be extended, Isaiah said, take a cake of figs. That's how the NAS puts it. Take a cake of figs. And they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. Now, I don't really personally understand what the cake of figs has to do with the disease. And I'm not even sure that it is intended to be a, what we would think of as a common grace remedy for whatever he has. But God has ordained the healing but here again, notice here that God has appointed a means to be employed. Is Hezekiah going to get better? Yes, but what do you think is going to happen if they don't obey God and they don't apply the cake of figs to the boil? He's not going to get healed. God who has de decreed the end decrees the means. You want to grow in grace? You want to grow in likeness to Jesus Christ? You better be in church. You want to stay in the faith? You want to stay in the narrow way that leads to eternal life? You better be in church. Better use the means of grace. Jesus said, don't neglect the Lord's day. Don't neglect the gathering of the saints. Don't neglect the reading and the preaching of the Bible, the singing of psalms and hymns, the taking of the Lord's table. These are the means. This is the means. Look, I, I don't know why a cake of figs should heal Hezekiah, and I can't fully understand how it is that some bread and wine in memory of Christ should strengthen my faith, but God says, do this in remembrance of me. <laughs> do it. In, in, do, do the, he wants you to do this, and yet most of the evangelical church says, eh, maybe once a quarter, you know. <laughs> Rarely, you know. Um, we, we are to do what the Lord says to do. And, and, the, and it seems to indicate in the book of Acts that they did that. They, they listened to the apostolic teaching and preaching, and they had the Lord's Supper. They broke bread, we're told, and they had fellowship together. And this was the means that God used to build up the church, and, and that hasn't changed. So um, means are... The means that God has given us uh, are the means that he intends to use to bring about the end that he has decreed. 
here. Now, um, we see that this is something that we find in other places of scripture. This is not the only place uh, where we see the Lord seemingly changing his mind. You think about, for example, Nineveh and Jonah's preaching. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh and preach. Now, what is the message that Jonah is to preach? The message is that God is going to destroy this city. Period. God is going to destroy this city. It's the response of the king and the people as they don the sackcloth and the ashes and they humble themselves before God that God relents. And the Lord spares Nineveh. Uh, we see, uh, for example, when David sinned and he took the census and God sent the angel of the Lord and a pestilence through the angel of the Lord. And God was causing the people to fall. Many people were dying of this terrible plague. But yet, what, what happened? David pleaded with the Lord. He said, Lord, this is my fault. It's not their fault. And the Lord relented. We see this in the, in the wilderness. We see that Israel, God says, get out of my way, Moses. I'm going to, I'm going to destroy these people. I'm going to kill them all. And God would still be faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he could just start over with Moses. And he would still keep his promise to the patriarchs. And yet Moses does what? He intercedes and he, he pleads with God not to destroy the people of Israel. He says, what are, what are the nations going to say that you brought them out uh, of Egypt but you couldn't bring them to the promised land? So we see many times the, the scriptures give us these examples, and these examples are not to minimize human responsibility, but to, I think, motivate human responsibility. The sovereignty of God is to motivate us to serve God. And Paul said it this way. He said that our service to God is not in vain. We do our works, and that which we do, he said, is, it is never in vain, even if it, it seems maybe futile from a human perspective. Maybe your prayers uh, may not be answered in the way that you were intending, but nevertheless, God may use those prayers in ways that you did not intend. It may be that you're, you're praying for A, and God brings about B. Or maybe you're praying for A, and you get non-A as an answer, but in the process of praying for A and receiving the answer of non-A, you receive grace from God. And you're more conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, who was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And you know what it is to suffer in this world and to depend upon God, even as Jesus, all the more, had to depend upon the Father as he's praying in Gethsemane. If there's any other way, let this cup pass. But what's the answer? The answer is no. The answer is no. Jesus has to take the cup of wrath. He has to drink the cup. He has to go to the cross. He has to be a substitute for sinners on that cross. He has to bear the wrath in the, uh, of God. The judgment of God must fall on the head of the innocent lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now in, in verses 8 through 11, then Hezekiah, you'll see, asks for a sign. Now, it is the, the personal opinion of your pastor that I'm not sure that this was really an act of faith or great faith here. Um, I'm not sure whether that opinion is universally held or not. 
But notice verse 8. It says, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me? I, I am somewhat of the view that Hezekiah should have simply taken the Lord at his word. But it does seem that God is willing to condescend to the weakness of Hezekiah's faith and give him a sign. Now, that's not always the case. You remember that in Jesus' day, they were asking for a sign that he show himself evidence that he was who he said he was, the Son of God, very God of God, in flesh, the Messiah who had come. And, and Jesus said, you will receive no sign but the sign of Jonah. That, that uh, they had to, he, he being God, they had to simply believe his word. And, and so we shouldn't, as God's people, be looking for signs from God. Often that can be a weakness of faith. I think it, it's the same uh, when we, we see Gideon putting out the fleece. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I put out a fleece to see if this was really what God wanted me to do. Actually, that was, I think, a, a sign of a lack of faith on Gideon's part. The Lord had told Gideon he would have the victory. And, and, and Gideon still wasn't certain that he could count on what the Lord said, and he put the fleece out, and he asked, you know, put the dew on the fleece and let the ground be dry and then reverse it, you know, let the ground be wet and the fleece be dry. And, and I think that was a weakness of his faith. Now, again, God sometimes uh, will condescend to the weakness of faith. I, I think he certainly probably does this for new converts, people who aren't very mature in the faith, they're new to Jesus Christ, they, they uh, you know, God deals with his children differently in different circumstances. But all this to say that I don't think we should be looking for signs um, as, as is done here by Hezekiah. So I actually um, would be a little critical here at this point, but here it is in the, in the text. So he asked for the sign, and that is that the... Um, well, let me look at verse 9 with you. He says, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord. The Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or, or back 10 steps? And, you know, kind of like, um, you know, like a clock. You know, are, are we going to have daylight savings or are we going to have, you know, standard time? All right, are we going to move the clock forward or are we going to move the clock backward? That's essentially, I think what's going on here is the, the shadow probably being that of uh, a, a, a sundial. And so, uh, you know, Hezekiah is saying, well, uh, you know, ordinarily the shadow, you know, goes forward, but let it go back. It says it's easy for the shadow to decline 10 steps. Let the shadow turn backward 10 steps. Let's set the clocks backwards, essentially. And so Isaiah, the prophet, cries to the Lord, and he does so. So I think um, there he's confirming to Hezekiah that he's going to do as, as he says here. Um, we're going to have to close verses. The rest of this chapter is about an, another section. Um, and here again, it seems like another weakness of Hezekiah's imperfect faith and why we need a king like Jesus Christ, who is a perfect and holy king. In short, let me just tell you the story. Hezekiah recovers. The king of Babylon hears that Hezekiah has been sick. Now remember, they don't have... Um, the internet back then, so they depend on couriers who travel long distances for news. The news is slow. Hezekiah is well recovered by this point, but the king of Babylon sends these ambassadors with presents 
for Hezekiah because they had heard he was sick. Hezekiah receives them and then shows him all the glories of his kingship. Isaiah comes and says, what have these men seen of yours? And he says, well, I didn't hide anything. And it's a precursor of what lays in the future, that God is going to bring a judgment on and against Judah in Hezekiah's days. Here we see, um, and it's really due, if you look, it's due to Manasseh. And here's something for you to think about. How many years did God say Hezekiah was going to get? Fifteen. Notice what the beginning of verse 1 says in chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. When was Manasseh conceived? Three years after the healing of Hezekiah. So the Lord answered Hezekiah's prayer. But it's going to lead to a great tribulation for the people of God in the coming years and decades. Why um, did Hezekiah not appeal to God when he heard the judgment of the Lord about Babylon coming? That is somewhat of a mystery to me as well. I would think based on what Hezekiah learned from his first experience when God said to him, you're going to die, and he prayed, and the Lord extended his life, and now God is saying, your country's going to die after you're gone. But instead, what does Hezekiah say? Ah, that's all right. It'll be peace in my time. And again, I think this was a major failure on Hezekiah's part. I think Hezekiah should have gone to the Lord and should have called upon the people of God to go to the Lord, even if it meant that there would be peace and prosperity in his own day for the sake of the children and the grandchildren and those generations that were to follow him, knowing that God would respond or had responded to prayer, I think Hezekiah should have gone to the Lord. You know, we have a king who has not forgotten to make intercession for you and me. We are told that Jesus lives to make intercession for his people. And we can, I think, sleep well knowing that we have a king who does not forget to pray for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today's lesson. We thank you for King Hezekiah in all the ways that he was faithful. We thank you also, Lord, for showing us uh, truthfully that Hezekiah was a man of clay feet like us all and that we need Jesus Christ, the rock himself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.